Welcome to Armbrey with Donnie Deutsch. I am Donnie Deutsch, and this is the show that's dedicated to a simple premise that everybody and everything is a brand. Every athlete, every celebrity, every product, every corporation, every political party, all brands. Brand is a set of values, a value system. Look, we're all brands ourselves. If you have a Facebook or an Instagram page, you, you're putting a brand out there, what you look like, what you believe. So we're all brands. We do two things on the show. Uh, on Tuesdays, we drop our brands of the week, and those are the which we look at which brands, which companies, which products, which individuals are up and down, who's driving the zeitgeist. And on Thursdays today, we drop a brand with a big interview with a big person about their own personal brand. And today, it's Wall Street Titan John Mack. John, for years, ran Morgan Stanley, one of the biggest banks in the world. Uh, we're going to talk to him about today's economy. We're going to talk to him about the, the crazy go-go years in Wall Street. He's got amazing inside stories about Wall Street and the banking business and business overall. So take a listen. You're going to learn a lot. Here's John Mack. I'm thrilled to introduce today's guest. Uh, John Mack is a legend in the business world. Um, he is the former CEO of Morgan Stanley, a couple of stints there, former CEO of Credit Suisse when it was Credit Suisse First Boston. Um, he is currently the senior advisor at KKR. Uh, as I said, he's a Wall Street legend. He's got a new book out, Up Close and All In, Life Lessons from a Wall Street Warrior. Uh, John, welcome to On Brand. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, first off, important stuff. You're a, you're a Blue Devil, a Duke graduate, and this is the first year without Shashevsky. How are we feeling about the, the Blue Devils? Well, uh, I think he had a good team under him. Shire is going to be replacing him. I'm pretty confident they'll do well. I think as unbelievable as Mike is as a coach, there's a certain uh, patina aura around Cameron Indoor Stadium. Yeah. And I think it brings out the best in the players and the students there. You know, there's not a lot to do in Durham. I'll probably get criticized for that. <laughs> they really get into basketball. Yeah. So uh, I think it work, it'll work out fine. So what made you write the book? I, I mean, you've had an incredible life, and but uh, all of a sudden at age 70-something, you say, you know, let me, let me put this all down on paper. What was the driving force for that? Well, age 77. Um, people kept saying, you got to write a book. You've done all these different things. You know, you ended up, uh, doing a big merger at Morgan Stanley with Dean Witter, where you took the number two place. Eventually you left. Then you go to Credit Suisse and you run that for a while. And then eventually you left for a lot of different reasons. And then you end up coming back to Morgan Stanley's. And everyone would say, John, there's a book there. So after hearing a lot of my friends and associates say, talk about what you've done, I decided, all right, let's do it. Uh, you were at the center. Uh, you you led very successfully Morgan Stanley through the crisis in 2008. And you talk about, and it's pretty relevant today because we're kind of in a scary situation. You've talked about not as scary for various reasons of liquidity and, and other things. But you talk about the most 10 most important minutes of your career when Tim Geithner, uh, at the time, the head of the New York Fed, called you up and said, okay, Jamie Dimon's calling you. You better call Jamie Dimon and you're going to merge or sell and pick it up there because that that's just one uh, of those moments in time that that is just it, it doesn't get any doesn't get any more intense than that in the world of business i agree with you it was certainly intense well listen uh what was going on and i don't fault the hedge funds or anyone else they were taking advantage of our weakness and clearly shorting our stock putting pressure on it and uh, geithner and paulson were really concerned they they couldn't have a firm like morgan stanley declare bankruptcy. So I was getting calls from from mainly from Geithner and then also from Hank. And uh, finally, Tim said to me, John, I want you to call Jamie Dimon. He'll buy your firm. 
I said, Tim, out of respect for you, I've called him. He doesn't want the firm. And if you force him to buy it, he wouldn't pay me $2 a share. And Tim said, well, I don't care what the price is. I want you to call him and sell your firm. And um, thank God I left some four-letter words out. I said, Tim, well, I won't do it. I'll take the firm down first, and I hung up on him. If you could have seen the board member's face when I did that sitting in the room, they, they were shocked. But, you know, at the end of the day, you, you got to make the decisions you really believe in. And I believe that the Japanese would come in, and eventually they did come in. And a lot of it traces back to when I started at Morgan Stanley, we would always have two to eight Japanese bankers working with us. And they were really trying to learn how did investment banking work? How would you become a global firm like Morgan Stanley is? And as I talked to uh, the Japanese leadership after we, we did the deal, I said to Hirano-san, I said, Hirano-san, tell me, tell, tell me what triggered it for you to step in at this time. He said, John, I knew your culture. And it was the wrong thing to sell that firm for $2. And we wanted to step in and be part of it. I spent a lot of time with Morgan Stanley, and I respect the culture of the firm. So a lot of it is really the culture of Morgan Stanley saved the firm. It wasn't me. And the Japanese really respected what we had done. Let's talk about culture. You, you built that firm from 300 people to 50,000 people. And you talk about, I used to, when I was running my ad agency, manage by walking around. You talked about that a lot also, whether it was on the trading floor right. or you had a glass uh, office there or you'd pop into the investment banking meetings. And how do you keep culture today when you've got employees who basically are saying, we don't have to come to work anymore. And you've got CEOs that are being held hostage. And I... I, I, I couldn't run a company today. I, I, I would not, I, I'm going to sound like a grizzled, old, out-of-step person, but how do you maintain culture when so much of what's going on is happening on Zoom meetings today? Well, it's a real challenge. Again, um, I would put a lot of pressure on those individuals. You need to be in the office. Do you need to be in the office, you know, five days a week? Maybe not. But to build a culture is very difficult to do over Zoom. And the beauty of having people in the office, and this is one of the things I did, you can walk around and see people, see what they're doing. You can tell if they're stressed. You can tell if they're having a hard time. You can tell if they just made a lot of money. And if you're doing that on Zoom, you're missing really the whole trading floor and the interaction between salesmen and traders and clients. So I always felt on the margin, you could do conference calls, you could do some Zoom meetings. But not if you want to have a first-class firm with people who are really driven to succeed. I want to go back to the beginning with you because you really are a rags-to-riches story. Your grandfather comes over from Lebanon, small town in North Carolina. How big were you dreaming back then? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, Because no one would have tapped you on the shoulder and said, this guy's going to end up in the corner office at one, at, at one of the white shoe investment banks uh, running and being a master of the universe. So where, 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 where was your head back then? Well, my head back there was what I, my mother said. I mean, her, you know, immigrant family, uh, they believed everyone should be a doctor. doctor. They wanted you to, she so, wanted you to be a doctor, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, you got to go to medical school, you should be a doctor. And so I ended up getting a athletic scholarship to Duke University. And uh, I'll never forget, in my high school, there were 86 people in my senior class. 
So it was a mill town, a small town, small classes. So I remember taking my first calculus course at Duke University. The book was about three inches, maybe four inches thick. There were four semesters that were taught from that book. So I go in my calculus class, and I'm sitting by a young guy from a Long Island here in, in near the city, and he'd already gone through the entire book in his senior year at uh, in high school. Right. I'd never seen a calculus book. So it, it was really under the gun. I found it very difficult. And I said to myself, do I really want to go through four to six years of medical school and do all that? And the answer was, I really didn't. It was my mother's dream. But also, I was on scholarship, uh, athletic scholarship. And my scholarship was a guarantee for four years. And I was short, I think, two classes to graduate. I had uh, no money or my family had no money. So I got a job at a brokerage firm in Durham, North Carolina, called First Securities in North Carolina. It was it was me and nine women on the back office. And that's where I really got the bug. This is what I wanted to do. And also, uh, the head of job placement at Duke University was a lady named Fanny Mitchell. And recruiters from all over the country, and in some cases from Europe, would come and ask her, who are the students we should be uh, talking to? And only because I liked her and got along with her well, uh, we had a great relationship. And uh, she would give me advice on what courses to take, who I should be talking to. And she would always say to these recruiters, the one person you need to speak with is John Mack. And that's how I ended up going to Wall Street. If I was going to say to you, John, and uh, if you were going to have to say the one thing that kind of, if you were going to look in the mirror and say, okay, I think the reason I was able to get where I got to was blank. With all the things, you because there's a lot of talented people out there and there's a lot of smart people out there. And I bet you would tell me you had people working for you that were smarter than you. So what was it about you that, that, that got where you got to? I think it's uh, very simple. I have no fear of failure. Yeah. I mean, you know, you go to Duke University, I come from a small high school where I'm making all A's. I go to Duke University, I'm making all C's. Uh, but, you know, as long as I, all I knew at Duke University, I needed to get that diploma. I needed to graduate. But if I failed, I would have come back with some other, other idea or another school. I just don't have a fear of failure. And I think, you know, I don't think it's hereditary, but I think about my father coming over from Lebanon at 14 years old and, 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 uh, he and his, his father got, got off the wrong train station. They were going to Marion, South Carolina. They ended up in Marion, North Carolina. So it's that kind of risk-taking. Look, I, I don't want to fail, and I'm competitive. I want to win every time I play. But if I fail, I just get back up and try it again. I hear you. I have written a couple of books. I have a whole chapter called uh, Embracing Failure. That That's just about every uber-successful person I've talked to over the years they will put failure in as one of the components of the lack of fear of failure or embracing failure, however you want to put it. And that's, that, that's it. It's, I find it's being passionate about what you do, surrounding yourself with really smart people and not being afraid to fail. That, that tends to be the formula for, for most people. Well, I think it is, but you know, there's the story that, that I tell. So I decided not to go into the retail business at Smith Barney. I went into the institutional bond business. And I sat beside a gentleman uh, named Richard Tarikian, who uh, Marine Corps, Vietnam, and here I am out at Duke University. 
And every day he would talk about the stress in his life. He had two young kids. He was worried about his bonus. And I, I heard it. If I didn't hear it every day, I heard it every other day. So I finally said to him, I said, Dick, how do you li- live with this stress? He said, John, this is not stress. Yeah. Stress is Vietnam when people are trying to kill you. Yeah. And that kind of put everything in p- perspective. But when I failed, at least they weren't trying to kill me. <laughs> Maybe they wanted to throw me out <laughs> or take my job or, or cut my pay. But no one was trying to kill me. So I just kept fighting. It's, it's easy to do. Let's shift it today a little bit. Uh, how are you feeling about the overall economy? I mean, we're in very funky times right now. Uh, there's a lot of dark clouds out there. How are we feeling about things? Well, from my perspective, and again, and not being in the day-to-day at Morgan Stanley, look, I feel good about the economy. I think the, the Fed is really focused on interest rates and the money supply. I think global trading is increased and deregulation is taking place. Now, clearly, there's some real dark clouds over this not just our economy, but the world. I think the Ukraine and what may happen or could happen, I think that's that's the real uh, scary uh, item out there. So from that perspective, as long as that winds down or gets settled, I feel really bullish about the economy. I think globalization has really tied the world together. And, you know, let's say the U.S. really slows down, but there are opportunities for Morgan Stanley in China or India or in or in Japan. So I think the opportunities are global today versus when I first got in the business in 1968, it was basically a domestic business. And I think the globalization and the deregulation that's taken place globally, I think I think the industry, the financial service business, the investment banking business, I think it has a great future ahead of it. Compensation may change over time, yeah. but it will still be a high paying job. There's obviously a lot of talk about interest rates, and uh, there's two schools of thought. There's the school that whatever that seem to be on the path they're on right now, that whatever it takes, you got to slay inflation. And then there's others that go, whoa, whoa, you guys are just turning the spigot too hard on that. If you were in charge of the Fed right now, how would you be handling things? I, I know that's no, a million-dollar question. That's a question, yeah, I mean, one I probably can't answer. Yeah. <laughs> no, listen, I think the Fed needs to be accommodative. Uh, to industry and to business. And I think to keep rates low really spurs economic growth. As long as they can do that without creating an inflationary bubble, that's what they should do. Crypto. John Mack on crypto. Yes. 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 Well, uh, (laughs) since I know very little about it, (laughs) what I did, I gave some money to... uh, uh, a, a guy um, current it's he, he's the son of my physician who current that's exactly yeah, right. right right and um, you know I gave him a small amount of money and he made it worth 10 times what it is Trevor Marshall is his name right in current and uh, I'd, I gotta be honest with you I've owned it and I play with it but I wish I could tell you I really understood it yeah I'm the I don't I like putting chips on winners and Trevor's a winner. Yeah, I kind of, I, I'm in the same place. I don't understand it. I got a little in there just because you just kind of feel like you want to be in the game to some level, just you know, under, not in a meaningful way, but in a way that at least you're you're playing. And I, I'm, I, I just, I, 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 I can't get my arms around it. Um, same way with NFTs, and but then you go, you kind of step back, and I go as a marketer. 
look, if at the end of the day, enough young people believe in anything, it becomes a fait accompli. And you kind of have to almost believe in the power of numbers, even if you yourself are not kind of seeing it. No, I agree with you 100%. I, I think, you know, I'm 77. You think about a young man or woman somewhere between 18 and 30, they're, they're really plugged in and they're seeing things that, number one, even if I saw them, the question is, would I understand it? But markets change and people change in the way they take risk and how they take risk. So I think the younger generation is really expanding the field of how and where to invest. In my heyday, somewhere between you know 25 and 50, it was all about globalization. It wasn't about these currencies, uh, these cryptocurrencies. It wasn't about what technology could do. It was about traditional buy-in and selling of securities, financing emerging markets, and making sure you covered the pension funds. Today, the computer and crypto and the way people communicate has become instantaneous. It's no longer selling a, sending a, a telex wire to someone or calling someone overnight. Everything's done on the computer and the, and the combination of the immediacy of getting a message to someone anywhere in the world has really changed the way people invest and what kind of risk they take. Yeah. You miss the game? Do I miss the game? I do miss the game. What I miss the most is working with the people I worked with. I mean, to, uh, you, you know, there are a lot of funny stories. I don't know if all of them are in the book, but I used to sit in a corner office uh, in the McGraw-Hill building uh, right on the corner of of 6th Avenue and I think 50th Street or 49th Street. And I decided if I wanted to see what was going on fixed income, I need to be be out on a floor. So I built a glass cage. It looked like uh, almost I was in a cage of a zoo where I could sit out and see people's faces and what was going on. And, you know, you'd walk over and talk to the traders You'd go talk to the salesperson who just made a big transaction. So I decided uh, it would be fun since I'm sitting out there and people would come by and talk to me, et cetera, et cetera. I was going to buy everyone lunch. So we called Wolf Wolf Deli. And I think we ordered close to 800 sandwiches. Uh, and if you've been to the deli recently or not, these sandwiches, if you could eat half oh, of yeah, one, yeah. you're doing a good job. Oh, yeah. If you eat if you eat the full sandwich, wow, you haven't eaten in a long time. So they would come in and start bringing the sandwiches and put them out by by my glass cubicle. Literally at 10:30, people were lining up to take the sandwiches. <laughs> Not just one. They were taking two. I don't know how you eat two. So I always enjoyed seeing and watching how people work what turns them on, what turns them off. And one of the things we started Morgan Stanley, which was just, it was just whimsical. Every Monday, we would have an eight o'clock meeting with traders hooked in from Asia, Europe, and cleared in the United States. And they would talk about the markets, what they thought was going to happen, any big financings, and the sales management would get up and, and, and say a few words. So I thought, you know, this is really dead serious. Let's bring a little levity into it. So I I started showing short film clips. So the first one I started out with was close to the holiday times of Christmas. 
And I had Bing Crosby singing, I'm singing, I'm wishing of a white Christmas. Jesus, you're aging yourself, my friend. You're aging yourself, right. But the song still lives. Right. The rest of the day, if you were on the trading floor, all you could hear people humming or whistling, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. <laughs> Little things like that bring people together. And as I look at my management style, that's what I try to do. And, and one of the things that uh, I may have mentioned it earlier, you know, you go to a golf outing, it was all men. Yeah. So I got, you know, 15 or 20 of our most senior women. Got David Ledbetter, who was a golf instructor and had a clinic in uh, Orlando. I sent these women down to take golf lessons. Then I brought Ledbetter and his guys up to the Purchase Club to, to, to teach golf. And the beauty of it, as I may have said earlier, these ladies now have their own golf outing. I think that's terrific. And I think being inclusive is paramount in having a successful firm. Speaking of inclusivity and, and bringing people together, I, I can never remember this country being as torn apart as it is right now. Uh, no matter which side of the ledger you are politically, you have to agree that we are as divided as this country has ever been, certainly since, since the Civil War. Give me your take on how we got here. I think we got here by playing the have and have nots card. I think we got here by a Trump who is very smart and a genius at dealing with people, uh, kind of setting the divide about how you're not being represented the way you should be. Uh, and I, again, I think, you know, when you think about that attack of the Capitol, I mean, how did we get there? And we get there because, you know, uh, Emails and Instagram is all instantaneous. You, you don't need a microphone to pull people together. You don't need a microphone, you know, to try to rally the crowd. You can rally the crowd and pick the one item that would really upset them. So I, I think the divisiveness uh, in this country has gotten wider. But I think a lot of it, again, I think technology has exaggerated how quickly yeah. rumors and hate and you know, anger can pass around. So what do we do? You right now, you to that point, we have this this thing right here that we all kind of get our news the way we want it. You, sure. Everything is bespoke. So now you don't have a central nervous system to bring people together. You basically have a technology set up that isolates us by definition. You know, I, I want to go see the new, I'm a Fox guy or an MSNBC guy or whatever it is. Like, I'm going to find the news the way I want it. So being that what, what you said, describing the fragmentation in the technology, what, how do we, if, if you are, if I, I tried to give you the job as the head of the Fed, now I'm going to give you the job of we got to bring people together and you're, you're the CEO of the United States, you're the president. What do you, what do, you do to, to kind of fight that? Well, I think you have to, at a national level, you have to find leaders who will bring people together. And uh, it's clearly not the governor in Florida would be the one. <laughs> but there are moderate governors yeah. who can reach out, and they need to be more public. They need to be out there. They can't be sitting in their office. They need to talk to people. So I would think whether it's through television or town meetings or town halls, that conversation needs to take place. At the end of the day, we're all Americans. We care about each other. We care about this country. And I would argue we have a global care that goes around the world, how we try to do things and the help we're giving to Ukraine and what we've done in, in floods in other parts of the world and how we try to help. 
I think our leaders need to be more vocal and they need to be be more out there. I think it's too easy to say, all right, I'll do a speech uh, once a month. Our president needs to be talking constantly. Our governor needs to be out there. Our mayor needs to be out there. I think there's really talented leaders in this country. They just need to make a bigger presence by being ready to be out front and talking to people on almost any subject. I mean, one of the things that we enjoyed at Morgan Stanley were our town hall meetings. Is like I said earlier, you can ask me anything you want. I hope you don't embarrass me, but if you want to, I can take it. We had an open dialogue. And I understand it's a small group of people, but at the local level, whether they're in the cities or in the states or clearly at a national level, we need to do more about communicating. One of the problems is, I would ask a guy like yourself, how come you never ran for office, is that the brightest minds from the private sector who've lived in the private sector their entire lives don't want to put themselves through that scrutiny and said, oh my God, you know, I've, it's what I didn't, I always haven't been running for office. So I've, not that I've done any terrible things, but we've done enough things that it's just, I don't want to put myself through this. And the problem is right now is that the best minds almost take themselves out of the game. And you, that that's, that's, and a lot of people say, oh, well, since Trump, it's different. You know, you can have your warts and still run. But Trump was a unicorn. And I, I think for most people, put through the scrutiny, they don't want to do it. And some of the best minds don't ever surface for that reason. Well, I think a lot of it is how much, uh, how important is privacy to you? And how important is your relationship with your family? I'll give you an example. This is just a, it's just a small example of, uh, from a personal basis, why I wouldn't want to be in politics. During the debt crisis and all the refinancing, we lived in Rye, New York. It was near one of the golf clubs. And there was a lot of pushback how the government had bailed out the financial sector. So here it is on a Sunday morning at about 11 o'clock. And 400 people are come marching down my street, coming up to our home with signs and picketing. You know, you guys took the money, you screwed us all, et cetera, et cetera. They're entitled to that. I'm entitled to my privacy. And my view is if I were to go down the track of uh, running for political office, I I think the pressure it puts on my family is not something I want to do. Yeah, that's right. Speaking of your family, you when you at you, I was reading one of the interviews. You were asked your greatest success. You said it's been your wife, uh, that you're Christy, and that you're there. No question. That part. <laughs> not a lot of guys say that. People say that. That that was a. I was an interesting response. Well, number one is true. Uh, number two, she's more than supportive. I'll tell you during the crisis, and if I said this earlier, I apologize. During the crisis. I called her and said, you have to come to the office. I don't know if I can do this. Bang, she was there. And not that she gave me, you know, the secret potion or take these pills or hypnotize. She was there. And I felt a sense of security that, my, you know, the, the book I wrote is all in. My wife was all in. And that helped me get through this craziness that we went through. So I give a tremendous amount of credit. To her. And, and when I was going through it, you know, we, we lived in Rye, New York. She would come in. We stayed in an apartment. She was always there. And that kind of support and confidence um, gives you the, the strength to go through almost anything. So I give her all the credit. How are your kids these days? What are your kids up to? 
I haven't spoken to any of them uh, this morning, but they're all fine. My daughter is over in the UK. She lives in London. She's in the real estate business there. She buys and fixes up apartments and, um, and then puts them on the market, either rents them or sells them. Uh, my son, he's the middle uh, child. He lives in Spain. Uh, he has a, a daughter, 14 years old. They live in uh, between Sevilla and living in uh, Madrid. So they're back and forth. Uh, my niece is 15 years old. And one of the beauties of growing up in uh, in Europe, she speaks uh, English, Spanish, French, and German. Wow. Um, I don't know many people in this country no. that does. But her mother's German. Her father is English, and they've lived in, in, in Spain and France. So she's got all these languages. So that's what he's doing. I said earlier, my daughter is in the real estate area. She buys apartments, fix them up. And my my oldest son, Stephen, is a freelancer techie. Uh, he will do websites and design. And uh, he and his partner have a place in upstate New York, also where my daughter does. So they're all staying busy and doing things, God bless them, that uh, they have the wherewithal to pursue and not worry about, you know, we're going to have to have, we're going to pay the mortgage tomorrow. So it works out beautifully. And my wife, who is into healthcare in a big way, has these short film clips, which if I haven't mentioned it to you, uh, one of the film clips, she's got these uh, producers to do these film clips. Many of them are award-winning producers and directors. There's a one, uh, one of her short films are these elderly ladies in their 70s, white hair, playing basketball. <laughs> so they interview this, this old lady and say, what are you doing? She said, well, this is kind of my family. We played basketball. All my friends said to me, you know, Mary, you're too old to do this. You're going you're gonna to break your hip and you're going to die. And she said, guess what? I'm alive. And all my friends who didn't do anything are dead. Yeah. So the point being, you need to socialize. You need to be active. So she's put together 10 film clips. It's called TakeCare.org. And each one of them is a five to 10 minute clip on ways to stay healthy. So that's what she's very focused on. And New York Presbyterian Hospital has put all those film clips on their AV system. So if you're in, in, in bed, you're tired of watching, you know, CNN and you flip and you can see these short documentary films on how to stay healthy. So that's what she focuses on, and she's absolutely committed to it. Sounds like everybody's doing good. So you're middle-aged now. You're 77. What's next? 78. 78. What's next? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I want, to, uh, I want to do what I've been doing. I, I invest with young startups, which I enjoy. I like trying to help them out when they get into a bind. Um, I'm very involved with uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital. Uh, years ago, I was the chair. Chair sure of the board, yeah. Uh, I like what they're doing, and yeah. And uh, I don't know if you know this. When I first went on the board for the hospital, the Bob Baldwin, who was our previous senior partner, Morgan Stanley, said, "John, I want you to go on the board of Presbyterian Hospital." And I said, "Bob, I've been on hospital boards. All you want is money. I'll give you money." He said, "No, I want you to go up there, and I want to show you around." So. We went over, and uh, he took me up to the neonatal care. And here are these tiny babies, all premature, on oxygen, on, you know, pins in them or needles in, into them, trying to survive. They, they, some of them weighed as little as three pounds. 
But when you went up there, it was so old and antiquated. If you were a parent, you would be frightened. This is where my kid is. So I came back and I picked six families, managing director Morgan Stanley, and said, look, I want to take you up and show you the neonatal care of New York Presbyterian Hospital. So we go up and they see it. And then I said, look, for $10 million, we can upgrade all of this. So we raised the money. We upgraded the neonatal care. And I took a group of people, how we changed it and how good it looked. And I said, you know, this is really good stuff we've done, Morgan Stanley and all of you have done. But, you know, what we really need is a children's hospital. And we got the firm behind it. And we built the Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital. It's the only stand the only, only standalone in New York. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, it is. And I'll tell you, the employees, uh, now I'm retired, but from time to time when I go over to the firm, and even before I retired, employees would come up to me and say, John or Mr. Mack, I can't tell you how fulfilling it is to go up there on a weekend and read stories of these sick kids or go up there and put a kid who can't walk in a wheelchair and go outside and take them for a walk. It's been a center of focus for Morgan Stanley. And I think from a sense of philanthropy, it's probably the best thing we've ever done. That's great. Good, good for you. Good for you. Hey, John, I really enjoy talking to you. I, I've, I've watched your career from a distance. I saw Tony Shalou play you, and that, that's just, it's nice to, nice to meet you. And the book is Up Close and All In, Life Lessons from Wall Street Warriors, certainly a warrior and John Mack. John, I appreciate your time, man. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to my interview with John Mack. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, anyplace else. Stay safe. We'll see you next week on On Brand.